This is JCU Conversations, a podcast show from James Cook University, Singapore. Tune in as we ask experts in the industry more about their lives and their approach to success. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's listen to today's episode. Hi, I'm Pinky Sibel, Associate Director Branding from James Cook University in Singapore. This is JCU Conversations, a podcast show from James Cook University, Singapore, where we ask experts in the industry more about their lives and their approach to success. Our guest today is Professor Sandra Harding AO. Professor Harding is the Vice Chancellor and President of James Cook University, retiring after 15 years of distinguished service as Vice Chancellor. Under her leadership, the university has become a recognized name beyond Northern Australia and successfully grown its presence in Singapore and the Asia Pacific region. Outlining her many achievements alone could take up an entire episode. So why don't we move on to chat with the lady herself? Welcome, Sandra. Thank you for doing this. Well, thank you, Pinky. It's my great pleasure. Let's roll on. So it doesn't come a lot, but you secured a Bachelor of Science from the Australian National University before obtaining a Master of Public Administration at the University of Queensland. What led to the shift into pursuing public administration? So Pinky, first of all, I did do an honours degree in science at the Australian National University and I studied parasites in sheep as oh. a, for my thesis. And I spent a, a day a week for a lot of uh, that year on the killing floor of an export abattoir collecting bits. So um, I did that and I thoroughly enjoyed it. When I finished that year um, and had graduated, I sort of thought to myself, what do I want to do next? And I was living in Canberra at the time, that's where ANU was located. And um, I sort of thought about, and I know there'd been some discussions about the potential for some further study uh, beyond sort of building on my honours work. But ultimately I thought I didn't know that I wanted to do that. So I decided um, when you're in Canberra, if you don't have a job, you apply to get into the public service. So that's what I did. And so therefore I joined the Commonwealth government as a, as a you know, very junior official, of course, an entry level type uh, official and, um, and got to learn a bit about government that way. And then ultimately my husband and I moved from Canberra to Queensland. Uh, he had a job, he was working at ANU. He had a job in the Queensland government in his area. Uh, and I applied and got a, a, a job with the Queensland uh, uh, government. And so as I was in that realm of public administration and government, I thought, hmm, I really would like to know more about this. So I decided to do a master's degree in public administration. And it was a really good thing to do because it gave me the sort of theoretical background and understanding that I didn't have because I had a science degree. Now, I thoroughly enjoyed my <laughs> science degree. I enjoyed it very, very much. But, um, but at the end of the day, I feel very comfortable that the choices I subsequently made as a very young woman, as a very young graduate, uh, were the right ones for me. Was that shift hard from... <laughs> Well, yes and no. Um, I was doing a second uh, degree uh, before we moved to Queensland, uh, and I always liked the humanities and the social sciences, and I found interesting, interest, I had interest in government and politics anyway. So for me, it was just another new area to learn about, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. So it wasn't difficult, but it was different, of course. You know, it's a very different way of thinking. But the science degree taught me a lot around... Um, um, sort of the, the organisation of, of my thinking, I suppose, and rational thought and um, experiments and, and that sort of thing, 
Whereas, of course, the public administration degree was much more about the contest of ideas. Um, so it was a very different sort of approach. And I think both of them, I'm very glad I had exposure to both of those because I think it, it helped me uh, become more rounded in, in my way of approaching problems, for example. Oh, that, that's really interesting, Sandra. And then you receive a PhD at North Carolina State University. What made you want to further your education in America? So because I was working in government uh, and I completed my um, and I was doing my master's degree uh, in public administration, I ended up doing some guest lecturing and uh, some casual tutoring at, um, uh, at QUT. And I thoroughly enjoyed that. And so as my life progressed and I had a, a small child, I thought about whether or not I wanted to see whether I could return to academia. And I've always loved being in universities, but by then I was sort of in my 20s and I thought, you know, I really do think I want to investigate this. So I decided that I would take up a half-time lecturing position, which I did do and thoroughly enjoyed that. And I could do that off the back of the work that I'd done um, in government and my master's degree. Uh, but because in my master's degree, I got into some sociology areas, which I thoroughly enjoyed learning about organisations and organisational change and markets and how they work, I really enjoyed some of that. And so I decided I really wanted to do a PhD, because if you're going to be an academic, this is really your basic licence. And so uh, by then I was at QUT uh, and I proposed that I would uh, head off overseas to do a degree because I wanted to look around the world to look at a very good program that was going to fit my needs and my interests. And uh, I found one. And similarly, my husband uh, decided he'd do his PhD. So he also uh, managed to uh, find a, a program that suited him. Uh, and both of that came together. So we went to the same university and uh, completed our, our, our PhD uh, program. So by then my husband was working in the Queensland government uh, in a research science position and I was working at QUT. And so it came together extremely well. And I just loved the idea of one, doing this full time because we, that's what we did. Um, and two, really um, being able to test myself in a different um, circumstance. And because I hadn't had a strong background in sociology, um, the American degree is very good because you've got to do a lot of coursework first, and then you do your research on the back of that coursework. So I became, you know, um, very familiar and quite expert, of course, in my area of specialty as a result of that. So it was a great experience, um, a really wonderful experience, thoroughly enjoyed it, um, uh, loved living there, a great place, wonderful friends. Um, but, you know, we, we had two young children and we were always going to come back to Australia. So we did return to Australia uh, and uh, I returned to QUT. He returned to the state government in Queensland and on we went from there. Oh, that's amazing. And, you know, all this happened while you have two young children. So you see the, yeah. you know, the kind of work that uh, everyone must have done to make sure you achieve the kind of uh, goals and aims that you have in life. So that's very interesting. Now, on a slightly lighter topic, Sandra, I happen to know that you enjoy skiing. So what do you like about skiing? And what's the best place to ski? What would well, you suggest? My idea of the, of the ideal holiday is an active one. So it is about going out, walking or doing something, um, being outside in the fresh air, 
uh, and um, thoroughly enjoying ourselves. And so in our family, with my husband being a forester, uh, we always have enjoyed bushwalking and getting out and about. Even our children, when they were very, very little, would do this too. So uh, skiing really fits that, that purpose very well because you tend to be out most of the day. Um, it is fresh air. Uh, it is exercise. Um, you test yourself, you learn new skills, which I always enjoy very much in a beautiful environment, beautiful environment. And then you have a full day out doing this and then you come home at the end of that day and you're very tired, but it's a very good tired, um, you know, have a nice meal, go to bed, get up the next day and do it all over again. So that's my ideal holiday there or going on long walks. So we also have um, uh, tended to go and stay in places, particularly when our children were little too, uh, where we would all go out on full day walks or half day walks um, in the bush, um, in the rainforest and thoroughly enjoying that as well. So I love holidays where I have um, a beautiful location, a lot of exercise, good food, good company, uh, being tired out, but just having a, a wonderful, really revitalizing, refreshing time. Ah, lovely. So you're actually quite an outdoor person, Sandra. We didn't know that. Yeah, we, <laughs> we do enjoy the outdoors very much. Yeah, we do. Mm -hmm. So do you think uh, that an active lifestyle complement your passion for thinking that you, you've gained in your life or does an active holiday keep you distracted? Uh, the active holiday is really important, um, and I do think it's a lovely um, sort of um, uh, contrast, you know, to my everyday work life, where oftentimes you're in meetings, you're in offices, mm. uh, and you don't get to do the number of steps per day that I should do, <laughs> so that makes a big difference. But I think what you're also alluding to is very important here. What this does is it provides a complete break. So when I go on holiday, um, and certainly most of the time the holidays I've taken because of the way the Australian academic year runs have been in January, I take a three or four weeks in January, you go away and go skiing, for example, and um, you, it's a complete break. It's a complete break away from work. And it is um, very good, I think, for your physical well-being and sets you up for a uh, very healthy going into the new year. But it also is good for your mental well-being. Mm. Well, it is for mine, I think, because it is, again, that, that absolute complete break. And well, how else do you choose to keep busy? So, um, well, how do I keep busy? I guess um, still a lot of, I, I do a lot of sort of organising. I like that, but I still like that outdoor activity is very important for me. I certainly read. Um, reading's always been a major hobby for me. Uh, spending time with our family and with friends is very important. And as our family is growing with our grandchildren now, it's a, it's a, a new pleasure, uh, a special pleasure to be able to spend time uh, with them as well. But, um, but a lot of what I really love to do goes to that active lifestyle, new places, new people, new things. I like learning. Um, I like to go to new places where I can learn something about that place and, and really enjoy it and understand it. Since you mentioned reading, is there any books that you enjoy reading? Anything in your top, top list of uh, most favourite books? Oh, look, I have uh, just so many that it is very hard for me to, to uh, name any particular one. But uh, I always have read from a very young child. I always read uh, before I go to sleep at night. Um, so the, uh, for a half an hour to an hour before I turn the light off. And it is my way of winding down from the day. 
So I read, of course, all of the sort of award-winning books. Um, I like um, really good literature, of course, but I also like um, just a range of other sorts of books. I like biographies um, as well. I like to learn about other people's lives too, which is really quite wonderful. Um, I read books about crime. I read books about um, comedy. You know, I, I read books about relationships between people. Uh, I always used to also read a number of the books that my children would read when they were younger and as young women. Uh, so the Harry Potter books, you know, I would read them after they'd read them so that I knew what they were talking about and I thoroughly enjoyed them too. So uh, I just I enjoy very, very uh, many books. I, I've got to say a whole range of different genres. Lovely. So, Sandra, one of your bigger contribution is the State of the Tropics report. And we remember the, the launch in three different countries and, of course, eventually the establishment of the International Day of the Tropics. How did it feel to have the United Nations recognize International Day of the Tropics and what drives your passion for sustainability in the tropics? So when I came to James Cook University as vice chancellor, one of the reasons why I was so particularly keen on if I was ever you know, lucky enough to become a vice chancellor, that I would want to be the vice chancellor of James Cook University, went to the unique position of the university. It was set up to be Australia's university for the tropics. And its act of parliament under which it was set up says that this university is to do two things. It's to provide education research on issues of importance to the peoples of the north of our country and North Queensland in particular. But it's also to provide education research on issues of importance to the peoples of the tropics, so worldwide. And when I learned about James Cook University a very long time ago, I thought, wow, what, a, what a, an embedded international focus. What an amazing opportunity and amazing responsibility for a university to take the tropics seriously. And to my mind, as I thought about it, as I was approaching the job and as I was a new vice chancellor, it struck me that we think about the world in ways that um, don't include the tropics. So we think about the world as uh, north and south and east and west and develop, developing Asia, the rest. But we'd lost what was really a fundamentally historical view of the world, which was a zonal view. So three zones of the world, Aristotle wrote, the frigid zone, which is the Arctic, the temperate zone, and the torrid zone, he called the tropical zone. Um, and what he also said was really the only place where civilization can flourish was in that temperate zone. And I thought to myself, this isn't, it isn't, that isn't right, you know, but the idea of trying to capture that idea of a zone uh, was very important. I wanted to test this idea. And that zone of the world, as we know, has more than half of the world's population. It has about 80% of the world's biodiversity. It has many common challenges and opportunities, a lot of it geography and climate driven by virtue of being in that zone. So it struck me that James Cook University was in a very important and unique position to be able to drive a fresh focus on the tropics, to add that to the way in which we view the world in global development. And so um, we had the idea then about the State of the Tropics report and engaged 11 other institutions around the world. And ultimately that report was launched, as you said, and it was launched on the 29th of June in 2014. It was an amazing occasion um, when the launch took place in Burma, as you well know, uh, and it was astonishing. And we also then a couple of years later, uh, had the opportunity and I'd been dealing with the United Nations on this work and trying to encourage them to think about the tropics in this new way. 
And ultimately, um, the work was done to provide advocacy for the introduction of an International Day of the Tropics. Australia led that international advocacy, and I'm pleased to say that Singapore was a strong supporter in the United Nations of this advocacy as well. And ultimately, um, this uh, proposal was put to the General Assembly of the United Nations in June 2016, uh, that from that year, the 20, later that month, in fact, on the 29th of June, forevermore, that would be the UN-endorsed International Day of the Tropics. Now, I knew the vote was likely to happen on this particular day. It was the 14th of June, if I remember correctly. I was in Townsville in Australia at the time. And I didn't know this, but UN has webcam. So you could actually go in and you can watch the proceedings live of the General Assembly. So I woke up super early before even they turned the lights on in the General Assembly. And I opened my computer up and I connected up and it was all dark. And I thought, oh dear, maybe it's been canceled. But I just sort of hung with it for a while. And then the lights turned on and then people came and they were distributing papers around the room for all the, um, the uh, delegates. Uh, ultimately it all happened. And the President of the United Nations General Assembly put to the vote that there should be um, a, an International Day of the Tropics. And by then, it wasn't just Australia and Singapore. It was 75 nations of the world chose to co-sponsor the re resolution. And the resolution was passed without dissent. And he lowered his gavel, saying it was so resolved. And I'm sitting actually up in my bed because <laughs> <in laughs> it was quite early in the morning. And I just closed my laptop and thought, oh, my goodness, that just happened. It was the most amazing thing. And I just, I just had to sit there for a while and process it and just imagine. And then to my great pleasure and delight, just two weeks later, um, I found myself at the United Nations headquarters in, in New York. Uh, and what I was doing there was co-facilitating with Her Excellency Gillian Bird, PSM, who um, was the Australia's ambassador at the time uh, to the United Nations, uh, the permanent representative to the United Nations. She and I were co-facilitating a discussion uh, in the trusteeship um, council chamber, which is next to next door to the General Assembly, on the issues of the tropical world with all of the international delegates there. And uh, it was just the most amazing thing. So two weeks later, there I was in New York, you know, co-facilitating this discussion. So, you know, how did I feel? It was just, um, it was a whirlwind. It was amazing. And it's the sort of thing that you dream of, but you never think is really going to happen. Because in the early days of the State of the Tropics project, I remember saying to people here at JCU, well, when we launch this first report, this will be World Tropics Day. And a number of people would roll their eyes and they would say, oh, well, we've got to, we've got to wait and see, see what happens. And I said, well, it'll be World Tropics Day to me, at least. And ultimately, it's the United Nations World Tropics Day or International Day of the Tropics. So it absolutely was a, a privilege and a highlight to be part of that process. I know you certainly had a storied career that, and, and with that example that you have just shared, when did you feel like you came to become a leader? Well, you know, I think all of us are leaders, aren't we, in our own domain. You don't have to be the head of something in order to be a leader. And that's part of what I try to say to people when I do do leadership speeches, for example, or discussions. All of us have a responsibilities in our own domain, whether that's at home or whether that's in our workplace. And I think to look to see how you can add value, how your leadership can add value is very important. I do think it probably 
is harder work for some people than others because they don't see themselves in that way. But I think if you begin to see yourself in that way, uh, then you will. Um, I think there's a very famous saying that if you think you can't do something, you probably can't. And if you think you can, you probably can. And so I think part of it's really about thinking about yourself. But certainly as a small child, you know, I started the drama club at at, um, <laughs> at primary school and I was always sort of doing things you know I was the inaugural president of the Australian Business Deans Council I started that you know so I've always been involved in in getting things going and up and running so I've never been frightened of that but I've I've always thoroughly enjoyed it too it's been terrific. Lovely and you're definitely an inspiration to many Sandra do you have any role model that you look up to that inspire you? Oh, look, I have uh, many, many role models to continue that last discussion that we had. You know, there are many people who lead, I think, with great power and purpose. And of course, there are the great world leaders that we can think about who have left their mark. Um, I was very fortunate in that a vice chancellor who I worked to for a number of years, who was a very quiet sort of fellow, but he, whatever he said, um, always was gold to me, you know, and he went out of his way towards the end of his time as vice chancellor to share with me why he did things and why he didn't do things. And his quiet, um, humble roles, the, the way that he exercised his role uh, was a great inspiration to me. And I've always tried to I've always tried to be like him, you know, I think it's very important. But, you know, there are many people who inspire me every day. Pinky, you inspire me too. <laughs> I think about the way in which the way in which you always get things done. You know, Pinky gets things done, you know, and you roll with the punches and you just do it. And that's part of your leadership too. So, um, so no, you're, you're my role model as well, Pinky. Oh, thank you, Sandra. You made my day and all that's possible because of the wonderful people we have around us. So, you know, leadership, a lot got to do with, you know, who working with you. So now a very important question and being a graduate, I remember you saying that to us as well, that, you know, it's about making the right choices in life. So in your opinion, what contributes to making the right choices? And if there is something that you think you can look back to and you might want to change that given a second chance, would there be any such choices? So um, on the latter part, I really don't tend to look back in that way. I certainly like to learn when things haven't gone as well as they might. And I think, gosh, I wish I'd made a different decision there. Um, or I think um, had we done something, approached it in a slightly different way, um, it would have had a better result. So I always, I don't want to move on from a circumstance that didn't go as well as it might without learning that lesson and then trying to do better. But I do tend to move on, you know, fairly quickly. Sometimes I think a little bit too quickly, I think. <laughs> but, um, but in terms of those right choices, I think that, that there are some pillars for me around how I try to live my life and how I try to perform my role. And these pillars are really quite simple in a way. Um, I want to be, and certainly as a leader, if you're leading a group, you have to be the best behaved person. You have to be respectful of other people. You need to give people time and you need to acknowledge and, and thank them for the work that they're doing. And you need to understand exactly as you said before, Pinky, um, that it isn't all about you when you're a leader. It's really about other people. And that's true of life as well. So 
The first thing, therefore, for me, um, and certainly if you're in a leadership position, you need to behave well because and do and follow the rules and do the right thing. Because if you don't do it, why should anybody else? Mm. You know, for me, it's very, yeah. very plain. Secondly, it's about making a difference. It's about trying to value add always and to try to think ahead, be proactive in that. Just don't be responsive. You know, and I do think that when you join um, a new organisation or when you take on a new role, not only are you there to make a difference, you're there actually to be the difference. You are the difference when you've joined a new role and you're taking on some new responsibilities and people are going to look to you for your personal professional example as well. So it is about trying to make that difference, which is really important. And then ultimately, um, it's about doing the best you can. And, and I take great comfort um, in uh, a saying which was originally by Abraham Lincoln I think other people have said it too but that was where I read it and basically he said that if you uh, if a person he actually said a man of course it's a gender <laughs> day, but I'll, I'll make it gender neutral if a person does their best what else is there what else is there mm. and so that's all you can ever expect of yourself or you can expect of anyone else. It's about doing your best. And then if you put those three things together, they add up to one really big idea, and it goes to being a person of good faith. That is mm. being the best behaved person, you know, seeking to make a difference and always to do your best. Um, and if you can do those things and work in the best interest of the institution or the group that you're working for and not just serving yourself, uh, then I think um, that for me is really the advice that I would provide. And, and that's the way I've tried to live my professional life and my personal life um, always. And ultimately to be a person of good faith, that is the highest accolade that I, I give to anybody is, is to be a person of good faith. And that's something I strive to be every day, Pinky. Ah, thank you, Sandra. And the last questions that we would have, again, being a mother and grandmother, would you think that's the same lessons that you would impart to your children and grandchildren? And if that's not, what else would it be? Absolutely. Um, so those are important lessons. And, you know, I think part of the, the, the important thing when dealing with family is really not to necessarily um, say that, but to be that person. So really it is about modeling the behavior that you think is appropriate. And I was very fortunate. I have, um, I have very loving parents and who I knew were always in my corner. Now they never actually said that to me, but I always knew that. I always knew that when push came to shove or if I needed them, they were there, uh, they were supportive. So what I want people to know in my realm, in my family um, is, is that that's their lived experience and then that's something that then they can extend to others. And I like to think in my professional life too, by being respectful, by making a difference, by doing your best and by being a person of good faith, similarly, just modelling that behaviour um, hopefully enables others to, um, to behave and to act in the same way and to add the same uh, and even greater value to the organisation or to the cause in which they're working. Oh, perfect. This has certainly been a wonderful discussion, Sandra. Thank you very much for joining us. And where can our listeners find you? So um, I'm here at JCU until I'm not. And, <laughs> and it is 15 years that I've been here. So, um, you know, um, you'll be able to find me uh, without doubt. You'll be able to find me even after I've uh, finished at JCU. But uh, I'll have to figure out how to provide that information to you in time, Pinky. Okay, no worries at all, Sandra. Thank you again for joining us and it's a lovely discussion. Bye. My pleasure, Pinky. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. <laughs>